There's war going on in this world. A war on freedom. He's acting outside of his authority by saying you can't put something that you want in your own body. That's your own personal choice. And can't nobody take that from you, you know? You're one of these taxpayers, and these are all your documents, and this is how we're going to rob you. It's fucked up, man. It's more war, it's more spending, it's more debt, and it's less freedom. We don't do that here. Some people think that you can't be radical and pragmatic. This is what we need, is a pragmatic radicalism. Not moderation. Hardcore radicalism but smart shit. It's not sitting in a fucking basement with a bunch of fucking nerds. You don't know shit, and that's the thing. You have to talk to people who think differently than you. Like, his focus is not how horrible the government is. It's how wonderful liberty and freedom are. That's what drives us. People are coming together more and more and more and more as the government has been failing us. We're just getting started. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Fight for Liberty Live. Uh, tonight, we had a little bit of a change up in schedule, uh, and our guest tonight was really awesome and really on the ball and was able to come in in like literally a moment's notice and, and join us. And I did not expect uh, his resume to be quite so long and for me to have to do quite that much research in 24 hours. But here we are, and I'm going to try to do my best. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, as always, we're going to start off with our sponsors because they're the ones that keep this tiny little light above my camera. Uh, it, keep, it keeps that light on. Not the rest of the lights, but that one. Like, just that one. It pays enough for that. So, Nug of Knowledge, uh, if you want to get some awesome cannabis like what I'm smoking right here, uh, you should go to nugofknowledge.com. Uh, you can get Delta 8 vapes like this. You can get uh, CBD honey. You can get uh cbd flower you can get um i think they just added gummies uh they have a tea uh they have all sorts of stuff and now you can sign up to be a to for a monthly vape cartridge you'll just you just sign up and then they send you a vape cartridge every month so you don't have to like keep ordering it um and you get a new flavor every time and you get to try out a bunch of them and you can sign up for like more than one of this if you're going to smoke more than one a month because i know i go through like one a week but you can do like an indica or a sativa or a hybrid or all of the above. You can choose all that. That link is in the, the description to this if you are on YouTube, Odyssey, or Facebook. Um, speaking of which, if you are on YouTube or Facebook, click the link right above the one I'm talking about and watch this stream on Odyssey because Facebook and YouTube suck and they keep pulling us down. And you should be watching this on Odyssey and supporting liberty-minded uh, networks like that. That's all of our sponsors for today. Uh, I'm just going to get right into it. Tonight, we have uh, a board member from People for Liberty, the co-creator of the Zero Aggression Project, the editor-at-large uh, for Advocates for Self-Government, and, and, and the president of Agenda Setters by Downside D Downsize DC, uh, which is the one that I'm going to ask him the most questions about because... That's a really awesome organization. Uh, basically, uh, they're dedicated to reducing the role of the justice and prison systems in people's lives. And you know how much we love that. We love criminal justice reform. It's pretty much my favorite issue. So without further ado, Mr. Jim Babka, welcome to the fight. Thank you very much. Uh, 
so I always start off uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of everything with kind of a, an intro testimonial. So I'm curious what started you down the path of liberty? And then uh, when did you realize that it was something that you wanted to do full time and, and put kind of your all into it? Uh, start was Bob Dole. I was raised in a Republican household mm-hmm. and I was a big fan of the contract with America. The Republicans have been out of power for 40 years. And it was exciting that they were able to take uh, take the House. And I thought they meant it. I thought they were going to do something. And they didn't. And uh, they proved that they were willing to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory by uh, choosing Bob Dole to be their nominee. And uh, uh, I was a man without a party very suddenly. And uh, mm-hmm. then I saw the Libertarian Party convention on TV. And I was hooked almost immediately uh, watching it. I already had a friend that was in the party. So I was aware of their existence and who they were. But I got really interested in the speakers I saw. Jim Bavard was one of the first people I saw, James Sobrand. Uh, and I stuck with it all through that weekend. And by the end of the weekend, uh, Harry Brown had made me a libertarian. Nice. And uh, I got involved in the party. I was uh, state chair of the party. And four years later, I was working on his campaign as press secretary. I was press, te- press secretary for the 2000 Harry Brown campaign. Nice. All right. So you are you have been in this for as long Quarter as century. I've been alive. Literally, <laughs> um, I was born in '96. So okay, that... <laughs> excellent, um, excellent. So yeah, I uh, I actually I'm a huge fan of that campaign, and I don't know if uh, if especially like the the nine I think especially the '96 campaign because it was the year I was born, and it was also such an awesome campaign. And then you know, um, Joe came back and kind of made everyone extra aware of the fact that she had ran in 96 and uh like harry brown is great and and it was it was last year or 2020 when when joe got the nomination that i first mm-hmm. really seriously knew like looked up and and started looking into harry brown at all yeah um i was i'm you know i'm a gary johnson larry sharp libertarian you know i, yeah. I came in in 2016 so I didn't do too much background research, but Harry Brown was just. Would you be willing else. to give up your favorite federal government program if it meant never having to pay income tax again? That was his great libertarian offer. I, most people could most people could not think, and this was in the 90s. Most people could not think of their favorite federal government program. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I I don't think I mean. I don't know what mine is. I don't think that I don't know if anyone has that anymore. Yeah. So he had a a real profound influence on me and I I, uh, ended up having a very good relationship with him in the final years of his life and uh, uh, even guest hosted his radio show for most of the final months of his life. And he is uh, he he was a a really I was I earlier today was uh, talking to an uh, an intellectual who's written three books, uh, wanted to talk to me because he's thinking about doing some new things with his career and you know, I was talking about war and the impact that Harry had on me in the area of war, because uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, the next day, 9-12, he wrote his most famous column ever. It was the most widely distributed, was translated into multiple languages, it was called When Will We Learn? Mm-hmm. And he started talking about blowback. He started talking about something that people in the intelligence and foreign policy and military fields all knew about and uh, and how this uh, happens. And it 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 was a real eye opener for me. I mean, that was kind of the, 
you know, from that point, forward, I mean, even though I'd been a libertarian, I'd been the state chair and I'd been on his campaign, you know, I think war was the last issue that I kind of needed. You know, you a lot of people think that we need the federal government for the military, right? For national security. That's like the one great purpose of it, right? Mm -hmm. And and that that and the Iraq war a couple of years later were the things that, uh, that finished it off for me. And I, I'm of the belief now that there is no good excuse for the federal government. Based. I, I appreciate that take. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, honestly, that's, it's impressive that you were able to not fall down the rabbit hole. I feel like, you know, a very large majority of people your age, like were were in their almost most susceptible years when 9-11 happened. And, you know, they, they went down that where I really like, I wasn't paying attention. And by the time I, I mean, I, I was somewhat, but by the time I got politically active, we knew that those wars were bullshit, right? We knew they didn't have weapons of mass destruction. We had already killed bin Laden and um, the other one whose name I'm spacing on. Cause nug of knowledge. So, so you know, <laughs> let me throw something in here uh, because of Harry uh, in part, he was one of the inspirations. This Jude Winiski was another. Uh, a friend of mine, Bill Olson, was. You know, we looked at these people, and we ended up in 2003 uh, launching a website. It's one of the things I'm most proud of having done in my career called Truth About War, truthaboutwar.org. It's still there. We froze it in time in 2003. Keep it up just so that people can see this. And we made a series of predictions about what was going to happen in that war, what was going to happen in Iraq. We made a series of statements about the facts and the truth of it. And we were able to do this because we had a set of heuristics or, or, or values that had been tested over time. And we knew to ask the questions because nobody in the American media was. You could not believe how excited they were. They were sexually aroused by the idea that there was going to be war. It had been so much fun the last time they had gone into Iraq. There was a guy, a reporter that was known as the Scud Stud. You know, there was just this, this whole thing, this romance for it. And they weren't telling the public the truth. And we made some extraordinary claims. And the most extraordinary one at the time was that there were no nuclear weapons of mass destruction there. They weren't there. And this was especially extraordinary because Colin Powell, who was at the time the Secretary of State, mm -hmm. went to the UN, UN at the beginning of February that year. And it was nationally broadcast on all the net networks. And he gave testimony, clear testimony, uh, with satellite imagery and intelligence data to the UN Security Council suggesting that there was a, web, a, a program of this nature. So we were crazy for having questioned it. We were running ads in various cities and we had a very limited budget. We were in a city, we'd buy a week. And by the next week, we'd raised enough money to go out and buy another week and we'd get kicked out of the city we were in. Uh, we did uh, a half dozen different cities uh, where we bought. We had a couple of people that helped us out where we were able to stay on air. But you know, we had to go from city to city to city to stay on air because uh, they would get too many complaints at the radio station. This was unpatriotic to question this at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was completely outlandish to suggest that he didn't have the weapons. Well, as you just said, we all know now that that was bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is insane how many times the government has lied to us and then told us the truth afterwards. Yes. Like admitted to lying to us, not just the lies that they keep telling, like that the right. earth is round, but like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> but this time it'll be different, right? Yeah. This time it'll be different, right? Right. Yeah. That's the thing. I, uh, when it comes to the, uh, like the libertarian, 
like the infighting within the libertarian movement, not the ones mm. that that's going on right now, but what I think is like the major like rift. It's like the anarchists versus the minarchists, right? Like the the radicals versus the moderates, right? Which is the rift that's in all three parties at the moment, right? Um, shit, even the Green Party is going through almost the exact same rift. And the one thing that I definitely like, if you still if you've spent more than like four or five years in this movement and you still trust the government just in some way shape or form like not government as an idea but this one like they tell you something and your instinctive reaction is okay and then maybe double check it you you're 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 messing up like what is what did you miss in this years of being a libertarian and learning because it's all we do is talk about how many times the government's lied uh i don't understand the ones that that continue to to believe it and i don't understand you know there's people on the other two parties that are in the same boat like people who are like radical progressives or or even like trump republicans they spent years and years and years questioning everything that the government tells them until it sounds good to them and then that one's true and i'll i don't get it <laughs> there's a so this was the topic of the conversation was have earlier today. There's a, there's a fantasy, um, and I, I I don't know fully how to explain this because it's such a, a novel idea. But we want certain things to be true, hmm. and we would like to believe that there is something bigger than us that is making all of these decisions. And this seems to be in our psychology as human beings. It seems to be a natural part of most people's. Uh, emotional processing system, that there's something bigger, that there's something that makes this all make sense. There's somebody in control. Um, not having that seems scary. And, and then you have to pay as much fealty to it and support it so that it continues to provide you with the blessing. It's like the ancients sacrificing, right? To get to the gods to do the thing they want them to do. It's kind of a new version of that. You have to profess faith and allegiance to it and follow its rituals and taboos. And if you fail to do that, then you're going to lose the security. And so mm -hmm. is the state a religion? Is it a cult? Is that what it is? I, I think yeah. that there's actually a compelling case to be made that that's what it is. And if it's then a, an article of faith, it's going to be very hard then to reason people out of what's happening. They're going to try to find a, a, a port in any storm, so to speak, in, mm -hmm. in, in emotionally and intellectually. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, I feel like when I when I was walking away from my actual faith, um, I because I was I was homeschooled. Uh, and so like my entire everything that I had learned up until the age of 17 uh, or even 18, because I went to a Christian college, um, was like creationism based science, like everything. And so I had pretty much walked away from my faith, like everything, but pretty much given up on everything. But I was still a creationist somehow and like a young earth creationist, like the most <laughs> like pure, like Christian belief that I could possibly hold. And then nothing else of the religion. But I was like, I can't I don't know. Evolution still just sounds stupid. <laughs> so so is, is that still your position? No. OK, um, Honestly, at this point, I don't even know. Uh, I've I've come to a conclusion that there are two unanswerable questions in the world, and that's where did you come from and where do you go when you die? 
And I refuse to try to answer either of those questions or base my life off of someone else's answer to it. Okay. That's kind of where I'm All at. Right. I, you know, it's interesting because I was raised in a more fundamentalist background too, and we did homeschool our kids, uh, but that we didn't uh, school them in fundamentalism. Um, I, I think there's certain package, packaging that comes with faith that's not warranted because I think the the message that Jesus Christ brought was nothing short of amazing. Mm -hmm. There's something, there is something divine about it to me. Um, but I understand like if, if, if all of it's bottled up in, you know, like hell and raptures and all the rest of that stuff and young earth creationism, I can understand why, why someone would want to rebel against that. I really can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I definitely think that being schooled in the fun in, I wouldn't call my, my parents like necessarily fundamentalists. Uh, they, they don't look like it, but they kind of raised me as one, if that makes sense. Um, it does to but... me, actually. <laughs> it does. My dad was a really cool guy, but I mean, you know, it was God said it and I believe it and that settles it for me. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Sir. <laughs> you know, my dad was an awesome guy. I mean, really just amazing. Mm. Uh, but definitely one of the things that pushed me, uh, not away from the faith, but just like away from the structure was the fact that I did Christian like homeschool curriculum. So like, for instance, in grammar class, when you have to like dissect sentences, you know, you like put them on mm -hmm. the lines with the lines mm -hmm. and the, which I miss the, that concept. I, I love that. That was my favorite thing about English class, but we were like dissecting Bible verses, right? <laughs> um, like sometimes poetry class would be a Bible verse that we had to memorize. Like it was just, bible 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 in every class and i was just like it made me not want to go to a christian college it made me not want to like pursue that like i almost was a pastor but i was like no i don't want to go through more christian yeah. school yeah no I, I i can relate to everything you're saying i didn't so homeschool wasn't an option back in my time but it was uh, uh i had christian i went to christian school and my, the, the school i went to is called baptist christian so how much on the note more on the nose can you be right amen okay <laughs> see i got an amen out of you wow and, I'm, in, and, I'm in texas man i've been i've been pretending to be an evangelical republican for the last three weeks <laughs> so <laughs> i, I get but thing. i get where you're coming from i you know that was my school it was on in the car radio it was uh it was you know I, we were there every time the church doors opened mm -hmm. and uh yeah, it, so I get where you're coming from. It's almost like you've been spoon-fed it, and you've like, I've had enough of that. You know, yeah. I don't want to eat that stuff anymore. I'd like to try some something else. You know, find out what it tastes like and mm -hmm. feed myself for once, right? Yeah, I get it. I get where you're coming from. Yeah, and I was actually just having a, a conversation with one of the uh, the New York State Executive Committee members last night on the phone, uh, and we were talking about how I think that every libertarian that was raised or not even raised, but like has spent a decent amount of time in the in the church and has studied any sort of apologetics or evangelism is like miles ahead of the rest of the party in the movement as far as like their ability to communicate liberty to people that that like uh, foundational understanding of things and like how to communicate with people and how to share a philosophy instead of just a fact or an idea. Oh yeah, uh, that's an interesting thought. Uh, it's and I've seen it like I mean, it's like Sam Robb is a great example. 
uh, Adam Reinhardt, uh, Jacob Winograd. Like there's just, there's so many like good, good Christian libertarians that I, whenever I hear them talk, they just, I don't know. They just get the sharing of the message a little bit better in my opinion, but that's a whole other tangent, you know, and, and if you, from the, I'm guessing from the branch that of, of Christianity you come from too, there was also an emphasis on the importance of an individual An individual matters. We were hierarchy mattered too. So you were in a structure, but you still mattered as an individual and you knew, you know, from my dad, a real big part of this was the ability to stand up for yourself and not go with the crowd. Right. Mm. So I was, he wanted me grounded in certain values so that I would be able to stand up for myself. I mean, this was, hmm. this was not subtle. This was overt. He, he spoke about this openly. Um, and that, that ends up being a lot of who I ended up being as an adult. Right. So here I am sitting here today, you know, my rights, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, it turned into a career. But yeah, it was overt. It wasn't an accident that he raised me to think that way. And I wasn't alone in that. There were other people around me that were that have, you know, similar. I mean, my friends from that era, a lot of mm -hmm. them. I'm surprised how much they think like me, honestly. I've never made that connection, even with the amount of times that I've had the conversation of making the connection between like Christian and libertarian. I've I've never made that connection that you just did uh, of like the being raised to go against the crowd because, you know, you have to, as a Christian kid, not give into peer pressure because otherwise you don't sin a lot, like <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> You're going to be one of those bad kids. And right. Yeah. So right. I, it's a big part of Christian uh, upbringing as a kid is like being able to stand up for yourself and, and not give into peer pressure and be to like do the right thing when the wrong thing is easier. I've never I've never made that connection to how much of a core belief that is to how you like to actually being an active libertarian at least um that's great um so i'll be honest uh, i knew like me or i thought i knew like maybe half more of your resume like i've heard your name associated with plenty of groups and i'm like all right jim cool sure yeah that sounds great um and then i started prepping for this and i first thing i realized is that um I should have had like three weeks to prepare for this. And second thing I realized that I'm well, definitely going to have to have listen, you back on. I was going to say, we're going to have to do it all tonight. More. Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's already late, you know, you're I, I'm, doing... I'm, I'm, I'm too old to stay up that late. So <laughs> you're doing so many things in so many different uh, areas. Uh, but I'm going to pick one thing that I'm the most curious about, uh, which with uh, Downsize DC and the bills that they sponsored, because I actually did a breakdown on the show of all three of those bills. The, the, uh, what, write the, shoot, I should have written those down before I did this. Read the Bills Act, the, the bills Write the Act, Laws Act, right. and the One Subject of the Time Act. Yeah. That one. Yep. Yep. Um, I always, every time I try to do it, I mix up the, the, read the bills and the write the laws i like you know because they're yeah uh but yeah we i actually did a breakdown of all three of those on the show at various points in time uh and about how freaking amazing they are as pieces of legislation and probably the three best pieces of legislation i've thank ever you. read thank so, you so was that you um how much uh did you have to do with that like how did those get written and, and put onto people's desks to get sponsored it, uh, it was myself and Perry Willis and some attorneys, uh, friends of ours, uh, William Olson and the late Herb Titus that uh, 
that wrote that wrote those for us. We uh, we started off with read the bills. We got that promoted up, and that became kind of the biggest thing during the Tea Party era. Uh, that's when that kind of had its heyday. We introduced the idea of write the laws because we wanted. Uh, there was somebody pointed out that if the Congress doesn't have as much time to legislate, they're going to offload it onto the bureaucracy. And we said, okay, well, we'll do something about that too. And we can get into each of these if you wish, but it sounds like you already have. Um, and then uh, one subject of time act uh, came last because uh, we woke up one morning to find that a port security bill had an online gaming prohibition snuck into it overnight. And we said, well, that's just not right. That's not how that's supposed to work. And so we introduced the one subject of time act and that's the bill presently that has the most heat on it. It's gotten the most mm -hmm. sponsorship. It's, it's introduced in both the House and the Senate. Um, and who's the current uh, House sponsor on that one? Russ Fulcher. Russ Fulcher. Okay. He's in Our... his second term. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't realize that there was, and, and I feel like this is the case for a lot of like noobs in, in politics. And I, I'm still, I've, I've discovered a lot of the nitty gritty bullshit on the campaign ends of it. But when it comes to the legislative side, I'm still a newbie. Um, which is why I'm talking to people like Michael Bolden and, and like Josh Eagle from 10th Amendment Center and For All Tennessee and like those organizations now finally to try to figure out what the hell you guys are doing. Um, but when like when I covered those three bills, I, I did one subject at a time as praising Massey because he had just um, or he had sponsored it in like 2018 or so. And like re-sponsored it in 2018 and i thought that he wrote it <laughs> i was like thomas massey is great look at this awesome bill well he, um, is, he is and then i gave Rand paul credit for the other two uh yes. when he reintroduced them a year and a half ago so yeah. sorry thank you no no it's okay uh you know there's no limit to what you can accomplish if you're not worried about who gets the credit uh, it's mm. most important that these ideas get advanced and they get discussed and i'm thrilled to hear that you did that that's awesome yeah, I mean, I actually like the one subject at a time act. Uh, when I first saw that, it, I, I honestly think that that bill started the process that I'm almost at the end of now of like fully transitioning from like campaign to legislative work, um, because. Like, I mean, can't, first of all, like we all know what campaigns are like, especially for libertarians. Uh, but I saw that bill and and just, you know, had a fun. I was doing nothing. I was home in quarantine and, you know, writing scripts for a podcast I was starting because I had that much time on my hands. So I just kind of like after I read that, like I, I clearly remember this. I like was daydreaming ish for a minute about just like how Congress would work if that bill had passed. And like how much it would change just that one bill. And I'm just like, this, this seems so much better than even getting like, had we gotten Jorgensen elected president? I think, I think the one subject at a time act passing would do more good um, tangibly because it wouldn't like, she would have gotten railroaded. Like, and, and if this passed, they, would be like it would stop the bad people from doing the bad things not just have one good person and it just something clicked in my head that you know that was like a year and a half ago and now you know i've i've pretty much left not left the lp but like resigned from all of those positions and i'm starting to work with organizations that do legislative work because 
I don't know. I just see it as a much more expedited process to to liberty. So I'm a big fan of Joe, and you know, we'll probably Joe's also on the uh, board of directors with me for People for Liberty. Uh, so I, you know, I I think the the campaign fills an important function, particularly mm -hmm. in terms of recruitment and bringing new people into the party. Uh, we, one of the things you mentioned in your intro to me was that I'm with the Advocates for Self Government, and we uh, just are days away. It's at the printer right now. Uh, from uh, issuing a report, we did a survey last last summer, trying to find out how people became libertarians, pathways mm -hmm. to, to to libertarianism, and we, we campaigns ended up being significant in that journey, very significant, and libertarian campaigns in particular, the presidential mm -hmm. campaign serves a wonderful recruitment function. But I understand where you're coming from, mm -hmm. because I think that the amount of money that it would cost to get somebody elected, the amount of people, the votes that you need to secure are vastly greater than the amount of activists that you need, citizens who in a district who are determined to get something done. Way, 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 way more by, by many measures. Yeah. And so we've been focused on that and trying to get that message across in the way that Agenda Setters by Downsize DC, which is our the form that we've been in now for almost two years, uh, works is that we're just trying to find 300 people per district who will go in waves to visit their legislative offices uh, to say, we want this bill sponsored. Three, five, six people at a time until mm -hmm. they agree to sponsor it. And we only need a majority of the legislators to sponsor it in order to get it passed. We can uh, get a discharge petition at that point and pass it. So I, uh, it would make an impact. I, would you uh, do? You, would you like to get into what it is that the One Subject of Time Act does with the rest of the audience here? Um, sure. Um, yeah, I, I had like a, like a si small little question and then it just, you know, in, in one ear out the other. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk about well, interrupt whenever you want, if, the, if it yeah. comes back to you. Uh, but the one subject at a time act says that the bill has to have a clear descriptive title. It's limited to one topic, one topic only. And everything in the bill then has to conform to that one topic. And this is not too much to ask. Mm -hmm. 45. 45 state constitutions have a one subject provision in their constitution. This isn't a law. This is their con state constitution, a one subject pr uh, provision for legislation. There are roughly half the states in the country have ballot referenda. Citizens could put something on the ballot to, to, to vote on. And almost every one of those states have a one subject requirement for the ballot initiative. And it has to be tested usually in the attorney general's office. Mm -hmm. so, Sometimes that screws us over, but yeah, but the point, is it's, it, the point is it does limit things, right? So it's something that the rest mm -hmm. of us, we citizens are, know how to do 45 state legislatures know how to do, but the Congress does not. And so they routinely take ideas that are, have no chance of passing, no chance of standing on their own in a democratic society. And, they sneak it into the pockets of bills. They cluster the bad with the with the sure to pass, and they push it through. Mm -hmm. And and I like to point out, I grew you know the era that I grew up in was Saturday morning cartoons. But most people, even you know, even my kids know, uh, you know, today I am still just a bill, right? I'm just a bill on Capitol, right? Schoolhouse Rock is what it was called back then, mm -hmm. and it's not it's not the least bit true because sure. most of the things that are passed are stuffed in large bills covering transportation, defense. And the, the part of the reason that this bill is catching on as much as it is with the legislators themselves, with the, with the representatives and senator, part of the reason that that is because they go back home to their district 
and they're running for re-election. And if they've got an opponent with a little bit of money who can run a TV ad, and that, invariably they pick an attack ad, and that ad says, can you believe that Congressman so-and-so voted for this or voted for that? Things that are clearly things that are unpopular or at the congressperson never would have voted for mm-hmm. based on their values. And those things almost invariably were stuffed in some bigger bill where they felt they had to uh, vote for it. Mm-hmm. So like crack pipes and COVID bills. <laughs> yes. So uh, now the last step to this is that we all recognize that Congress is the most law, uh, lawless band in the land, right? They're not going to follow their own rules. Mm-hmm. You can't trust them to limit the topic and police themselves. So we included a provision uh, that said, David, if you find yourself in the dock, you're charged with not paying a tax that was levied or you violated a regulation that was put in place or broke a law that they passed. If they didn't follow the procedure, you can show that evidence to the judge and he kicks the case out with impunity. Mm. It's over. So they can legislate all they want. They can violate the, this law all they want, but it won't be binding on you or me. And so if they, let them let them waste their time doing that. That's how the One Subject at a Time Act works. That's what I love about it is it gives, it gives multiple angles for like enforcement um and you know like pretty much everyone can just raise the complaint and be like hey so uh this isn't right and then it it can get struck down like the entire bill whatever passed just gets struck down um and we did the exact same thing in the read the bills act and the write the laws mm-hmm. act we use that exact same enforcement mechanism because you can't send congress to jail for not reading their bills for example Right. Mm-hmm. You can't even give them an exam. You know, we thought about making it the no no senator left behind act, right? <laughs> but we couldn't we couldn't yes. <laughs> I love that. But 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 how would you design the test, right? So we had to come up with a mechanism that would make it so that the key thing was to protect the American people from their failure to meet their fiduciary responsibility. Can we give senators just like a seventh grade social studies test? Um, on like government and how it works, like basic, like constitution, like, like which one is the second amendment, which one is the fifth. Yeah. You know, I, I love that idea. Uh, I also think and they then should fire have everyone to, that fails. I think they also should have to sign a sworn affidavit before they're even allowed to take office, maybe even put their hand on and swear on a copy of economics in one lesson. Right. Uh, You know, we just watched uh, and and, and the Democrats are backing out the door fast. Mm. But We just watched them implement a policy saying that COVID was the only thing that mattered. There was no other thing other than than this virus. And, you know, now we're finding out that there's there's a variety of problems with children uh, learning. They're behind in their reading and test scores, socialization, uh, depression, suicide, uh, return to uh, drug use. Uh, alcohol abuse, et cetera. Like there are all these, these factors, these social factors. And uh, they're like, oh, well, we never saw that coming because they never read economics in one lesson, which tells you that there's no way that the epidemiologist in the room has the complete picture, right? Hmm. You got to look. The one lesson was you had to look at how it affected everybody. You had yeah. to take into account all the effects. And that wasn't done at all. There were, in fact, near as I can tell, there were no economists in the room when these decisions were being made. Doesn't look like it. And if they are, they... I I don't know. They must have gone to some really bad school. <laughs> um, yeah, I I it concerned me from the beginning that 
that you know we really weren't seeing the economics of it like come into play and even you know fuck the media and the government like you know those people didn't want economics into play like they actually know what they're doing they're destroying the economy on purpose um but like the normal people that i was talking to that were just it doesn't matter like like whatever it takes like send tests to everyone's house lock everyone down give them a ubi and like like people that fucking hated andrew yang and thought he was the most ridiculous presidential candidate we've ever seen we're like we could do a ubi like yang thing like thousand dollars a month that would be great everyone could stay home like so the amount of people that i saw switch on that as soon as covid hit um uh, and like i'm kind of glad that they came around to like the fact that ubi actually is a concept that shouldn't just be completely thrown in the trash. Um, but not for this, or I mean, m- yes, for something like this, maybe uh, if it was what they said it was, but not for a f- bad flu. I, 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 I do uh, say that on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I do hope though we get a chance to talk about people for Liberty mm-hmm. tonight too, because yeah. that's how you and I met. Mm-hmm. With a wonderful uh, Lauren Potzler, um, yes. who I'll have to reschedule uh, sometime very soon. Um, yes. So tell me about how you got involved with People for Liberty. Oh, well, this, how I got involved is, a, is actually a, a really good story. Um, so a little, little bit of history. So in the late 1990s, and most people don't know this, in the late 1990s, the Libertarian Party grew to its largest size to this very day. So I, I, do you know, happen to know how many people were in the libert- are in the Libertarian Party right now? Do you know what the number is off the top of your head? Uh, 16,000, maybe? 15? I thought it was like 2022 or 23. Has it gotten up that high? Okay, I'd be surprised to hear that. But okay, let's assume it is. How about 37,000 people paying every year, $25? Actually, they were averaging 100 apiece. The, 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 the budget was the largest it's ever been. And even in inflation, and if you, and I'm not talking about inflation adjusted dollars, it's, it was bigger then than basically it is now. And uh, that happened because they had a membership program called Project Archimedes. Have you ever heard of pro- any of this, any of this history? Mm-hmm. Nope. So in 1997, uh, I, you know, 1996 was my first libertarian campaign. And, I, and Harry Brown was such a fantastic candidate. And I would try to, you know, it was, I, had, I was new to the internet. I was my first year on the internet. And I was, you know, following every time he was like on television, radio, whatever. So I knew what he was doing and I would see him. And I was thinking that everybody was seeing him too, right? Like I was at the end of the campaign, I knew we weren't going to win, but I was discouraged by what the final vote total was. And a couple of months later, I got a letter from the national headquarters signed by Perry Willis, who was then the national director. He ended up being my partner at Downsize DC. And at, in, in that letter, he explained that there was basically a cost per vote for Bob Dole, for Harry Brown, for Ross Perot, and Bill Clinton. It was roughly within $1.50 per vote of each other. And he said, listen, if we just, you know, on the high end of this, we basically need, in order to be competitive, about 400,000 people who are sending money to the party every year. So how do we go about doing that? And he named the project Project Archimedes because Archimedes said, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I'll move the entire world. So how do we move the world? We get as many members as possible. 
I want you just for, for a second to think about this idea. The more members that you have, the more anything becomes possible. You have more candidates, you have more money for those candidates, you have more volunteers for those campaigns, you have more campaign managers, more treasurers, more uh, business relationships, better databases, more money. I don't know if I mentioned more money, more money, okay? You have all the things that you, that you start to need in order to be successful as a political party. Mm -hmm. Nobody, by the way, since this, this time period, which was basically from 1997 to 1999, has made this the focus. In fact, there's been other people along the way who've attempted to lie about what happened back then. They've told various stories about it. It's really unfortunate. But it's now kind of buried to history because the way that the Libertarian Party's annual report, they look back in 20 year, over the last 20 years. So we're in 2022. So this part of history is now cut off from the report that everybody sees. This is now ancient history I'm sharing with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. The part it was killed by a policy. Uh, there were a couple of people on the, on the national committee who basically implemented a policy, a reserve policy to, to, to kill the program. And so membership went down from that point forward. It didn't, it, it kept going down, down, down. And now if you look at it from 2002 to the present, you would see kind of a, a line, right? You know, there's the graph with the ups and downs, but you'd find a trend line inside it that looks like they've been going up ever since. Mm. That they're more successful than they've ever been. But uh, they don't have as many they took a nosedive. Yes. Yes. So they still haven't fully recovered from those day, that era in terms of their money and in terms of their membership. Mm -hmm. So this is important. This is significant because when that letter arrived and I read that letter, it gave me hope. And I read it again and I read it again. And I, I try a few years ago, I tried to get my hands on a copy of it because I've moved a couple of times, stuff like that. Somewhere it disappeared. But that letter was life changing for me because I wanted to see if we could figure out how we could do that. So I got involved in various experiments to try to do that along the way, but never within the party because the party couldn't sustain it. It's politically managed, has five-year plans like any good Marxist system would. So we, uh, yeah, I thank I you. It. I love it. So uh, in the in the teens, uh, we had made a, a relationship with a rather significant libertarian donor. And we were talking to a handful of donors and some people about this concept again. We started to revive this idea and we started talking about the need maybe to just simply do something really, really basic. Ask people if they're libertarians. And there's study data. Downsize DC has produced this. We've shared this out with people that demonstrates that somewhere between 30 and 60 million Americans are basically libertarians. I'm going to use the term diaspora, which basically means people who are spread out. They're not in their home country anymore. They're spread out elsewhere. We typically think of the Jewish people, for example, being a di uh, diaspora. They're out, you know, there's obviously a homeland, but they're not there. But even even better example would be the Kurds. The Kurds actually, their, their people, their nationalities spread out over three different countries. And so they don't actually have their own homeland. And libertarians don't really have their own party. They're not the, the Republican and Democratic Party. They don't have a, a place that is really like their homeland that is politically competitive. And when in, in, in a system where you have winner takes all, the mm -hmm. people are going to start voting against a, the candidate they really don't want to have in office. And they're not going to go to a candidate who has no chance of winning to do that, to block the candidate that they hate the most. They're going to vote for the candidate that has the best chance to stop them. That's how it works. So we're kind of out of the box to begin with, but I want you to imagine for just a second, if everybody was able to kind of find their candidate, if they were able to come home, if the libertarian option was viable, 
It was a real nation. It was a real competitor. It was a real party. And they were able to come home. And that would be the way that they could get what they wanted. How many people would leave the Republican and Democrat parties? How many independents are out there? How many people would not register to vote? But suddenly go, okay, now wait a minute. That's something I can be a part of. Well, we know two things. We know that people self-identify somewhere between 20 and 35 million people, according to various surveys and polls that have been done over the last 10, 11 years, have said that they're basically libertarian. And there's this phrase that has some cachet at the moment. They identify as libertarian. And then there's another roughly 30 million people. And this is borne out by decades now, two and a half decades of the world's smallest political quiz, the, the tool that the average, the, the advocates for self-government uses, giving out that Nolan Chart test. There's about, there, there, people would score libertarian on that. They're probably roughly about 60 million Americans probably fit that category. They would be libertarian if they took the quiz. Mm -hmm. Well, this is some important information. It means that if we could go out and identify these people and we had a program that was designed to activate them and they and they started to find and see each other, right? They were able to start to make the connections to one another that they would want to be a part of it. So we started floating an idea called the libertarian census. We were going to literally try to go out and find all the people who fit this parameter. Now, would we find 30 or 60 million? I don't know. But you start to have some real strong effects when you start to get in the six to eight million range. You could start to really change politics in this country. Mm -hmm. Eight million votes would have been enough to beat Ted Cruz for the Republican nomination, just for one example. Okay, it would have put you, you know, the old joke. I don't, you know, two guys running from a bear in the woods. I don't have to outrun the bear. I only have to outrun you, right? Mm -hmm. And so you could have, you could have won the nomination with as few as uh, as eight to ten million votes in twenty sixteen. So. That's a sizable block of Americans if they were agreed to do something, right? A lot more than the couple, than a hundred or a couple hundred thousand that we have in the libertarian movement right now, and the twenty-two thousand that are actually members. You get where I'm going with that? I do. So I, you know, we start mapping out like, what are you got to do logistically? What are you got to do legally? And uh, you know, one of the things that we felt you needed was a super PAC. Now, in another conversation we have, I'll come back and talk to you about campaign finance and how that really suppresses us. Okay. I took a, I was, I organized a case that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court challenging the campaign finance laws. They are designed basically to defeat challengers and libertarians are the challenger of challenger, right? They're mm -hmm. not even, they don't even get to the challenger start line with ballot access laws and everything else, right? Yep. Okay. And most of your audience, if they're libertarian, they're following everything that I'm saying around. They're tracking with all of this. Mm -hmm. We need a super PAC. We need the ability to raise unlimited amounts of funds to get our candidate on the debate stage. Now the rules are gonna change in 2024, the debates are gone. But it, up, up through 2020, we had an opportunity to put our candidate on the debate stage. We could have, uh, Gary Johnson should have been on the debate stage, just for one example. It, what would have happened if Joe Jorgensen or Gary Johnson had been on the debate stage? How would history be different right now? How would the dialogue and discussion that we have? That was something that was doable with probably as few as 2 million people, mm -hmm. okay? So you, you get what I'm going out, the, the numbers matter. So when you get somebody who's uh, running for national chair and they say, I've got, a, here's my 20 point agenda. I've got 20 areas of focus. Well, if you have 20 areas of focus, you don't have any focus, right? The one area that matters the most is membership. Okay. And the set, the area that matters the second most is, oh, wait, membership, right? And then membership third, right? It's like the old real estate joke It's in, in, in our party. You have to, you have a list, a list and a list. And that list should be as big as possible and it should be as developed as possible. And you should have relationships and activism coming out of that list. It's list, list, list. 
And then I find out we weren't able to get anything going on this. I was spread too thin doing too many other things and we weren't able to, you know, making a living and doing whatever. We didn't quite get this thing over the hump. And then I found out that there was a woman from Texas who had, was, had gotten interested in Joe Jorgensen's campaign. And I'm speaking of Lauren Postler. Mm-hmm. And she was laying out the map. She was saying, well, we got to have this and a super PAC. And like she had started to lay out the pieces and started to bring together the people, including a guy uh, who was a former national director, who he comes into being a national director in 2019. You remember that 20-year window of annual reports? Mm-hmm. And he sees 1999 on the report. And he's like, wait a minute, what happened here? And he finds out about Project, begins to find out about Project Archimedes. And those are the people that began to assemble. Are you talking together. about Fishman there? Yes, I am. Dan. Okay. Fishman. I, I thought so. I just didn't, you know, he, I didn't hear that little bit of the story when I had him on. So I just wanted to make so, sure. Well, he comes, he, 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 he just told me this when I was getting ready to come talk to him about this interview. He's like, well, nice. I, that's how I found out about the 20 year slider. I didn't know that until I was, I was this old when I found that out. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, uh, I get really excited because they're tr- they want to do this. This is what they want to do. They want to put people before politics. They understand the importance of people. Mm-hmm. And they understand that we've got to build the biggest list and we've got to use and develop the data. But this is, this is the, the basis. This is the, the tide that lifts all boats, everything. Your podcast should have a bigger audience. Our candidates should have more votes. There should be more money. I don't know if I mentioned that yet. <laughs> there should be more money for, for all of this stuff because we have begun organizing. We've come from everywhere. And I got very, very excited about the fact that there's an organization that's committed to doing exactly that and that they've got an exciting tool coming out probably next month, maybe even this, we're very close, um, uh, that is going to begin helping everybody to talk to one another and begin to connect with one another and to begin to build this space. They are going to have, and I think this will happen before the year's over, they will have the largest list in the libertarian movement. So we have to, we got to put the gas on this. We got to really, you know, fire this up. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited that finally there's a group that is devoted strictly to this. And then, then I got the opportunity to be on the board of it, which is kind of me coming full circle. Uh, I'm very glad. I'm very thrilled to be a part of the team that, that we've got together here. Well, given um, all the things that I found out about you today, uh, I think they are, they're lucky to have you. Uh, but also, yeah, uh, it's, it's great. So, I think most people watching this might not need this explanation, but I'm sure that there's at least a few people that heard you say, we need a super PAC with the amount of vigor that you said it with. And they (laughs) threw up in their mouth a little bit because they don't understand what you mean. So can you explain why we need a super PAC and why we actually need like seven or eight? Most likely. So the strategy that I favored and the one that I had been promoting since the early teens um, was to take advantage of the, this, this opening in the law. When Harry Brown was running for president in 2000, back then contributions were limited to $1,000. Today they're 2,600, 2,700. It's not, it's not significantly more. Mm-hmm. When contributions are limited, you have to get a lot of them. It means that nobody, if, if a candidate has a friend who is capable of, let's say, making a $2 million contribution to help them get their message out. They can't do it. And so consequently, the money stays home. It doesn't even bother to show up because what does it matter if it gives if they give $2,700, right? Money matters to challengers much, much more 
than it matters to incumbents. So one of my, my favorite race all time to illustrate this is actually a house race in Washington state in 1994. The incumbent was the speaker of the house. His name was Tom Foley. And he had an upstart candidate by the name of George Nethercutt running against him. Now, Foley had this huge war chest. I don't remember what it was anymore, but it was a few million dollars. Nethercutt managed to raise $400,000. Now, the incumbents here, he's, he's, he's right there. He's going to win, right? He's above 50%. He's 55 60%, whatever it is. He can only go down. The challengers at the basement, they can only go up. So if a challenger can start spending their money, and I try to tell candidates this all the time, if you can force the incumbent to spend his money, that's how you start to win. Because that's a sign they're beginning to go down. So the game isn't to raise more money than the challenge, than the incumbent. The challenger's goal is to raise enough money to get the incumbent to start emptying their war chest. Hmm. Now you've got a battle on your hands. Now you can potentially go take them down. And that's exactly what happened. George Nethercutt spent money. Tom Foley said, oh, fine, we got money. He started spending money throwing stuff back, and his numbers didn't budge. In fact, they sometimes they went down a little bit. Money didn't help. Another cut kept climbing. He started becoming more viable. He ended up winning the race. So we, this was only the second time in U.S. history that the Speaker of the House lost his reelection. Okay? And, and so I want to take that and translate not that now to Harry Brown. That challenger money would have made him a national viable player that had to be talked about the same way Ross Perot had been talked about in 1992 and, and even to some degree in 1996, it would have made him a household name mm -hmm. and it would have meant that the media would have had to confront deal with him. It would have meant that he was being asked about polls. And it would have meant that he was starting to score in those polls and potentially scoring enough because we were focused enough at the time to get him on that debate stage. And if anybody has a chance to go watch Harry Brown on an old YouTube video or something, go do it because you're going to find out that there, this guy it was like, he walked out of central casting for the job. He was completely ready for the hour that was going to come, but he never got on that stage. And he didn't get on that stage because there wasn't enough money. A yeah. super PAC means that unlimited contributions can be given for that cause. It means that somebody could say, I have a strategy to get my candidate on the debate stage, and they can raise unlimited amounts of money to do that. Somebody can write a $2 million check, another can write a $10 million check, another can write a $500,000 check. You can have checks of all different sizes coming in. People can pile their money up together. And you can maybe get 20 or $40 million into the cause where you would be able to make something happen. You would make it so that it would be impossible for the biased regime media to ignore our candidate. You'd make it possible. And as I said, the debates are gone now. They're, they're over. But in, in, in the year of by that, are we, are they well, the not R, doing the presidential RNC, debates anymore? The RNC has, has, has uh, withdrawn completely. They will not be, they've, they've sent an open letter uh, to, this just happened two weeks ago. They sent an open letter to the Commission on Presidential Debates saying they would not participate in their debates any longer. Huh. Well, that's, yeah, missed that one. Yes, but there may be other opportunities. And somebody sitting here listening may know exactly where we should spend the money. That, to me, was the highest lever spot uh, previously because everybody watched that debate, right? It was an opportunity to, to get the message out in front of the entire country in a moment mm -hmm. when they were paying the most attention. But there might be there might be other opportunities that that we haven't figured out yet. But that was to me that was the one that made the most sense. And a super PAC was going to be the best way to raise the funds to get that done. Mm -hmm. And is that? But that's just presidential debates, right? I mean, we'll still have all the various gubernatorial and like other statewide debates. And whatnot. yes, yes. But it, and to me again, David, the key is you know how many people can we get uh, on mm -hmm. our list? How many people can we activate? 
who are going to begin to make a commitment in advance to be involved, making a commitment to support our candidates and, and then keep building on that, you know, emerge from every election bigger and stronger than you were before you entered it. Mm -hmm. What I'm really fired up about is how many people I've talked to that are saying similar things, be, um, especially because part of it's because I wasn't talking to the right people, but also because not as many people were talking about it. Um, the, the amount of times I've heard the word data in the last six months, as opposed to the first six years of me being a part of the, the, the LP um, or, or growing lists or uh, you know, just all of these various uh, terms and phrases uh, from all different sides of it. You know, I had Evan McMahon on from uh, the Indiana LP and we were talking about how, you know, he's actually working with a data management company that like does like uh, marketing for companies professionally and they're figuring out how to do it with campaigns and, you know, this awesome system that they're building out there. We've got people in New York, in Ohio, in Georgia, like all like actually trying to do things with this. And it's not just like written down like sign-up sheets that have maybe been like put into a Word document or something. It's like yeah. actual freaking data. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, you know, I know that at, the, at a national level, uh, Ken Melman has... Uh, mm you know, tried to make sure that there's a database yes. for the entire party. Um, but I really, I, my confidence that the party can be the vehicle to, to control and manage this properly is, is very, very low. Um, it, it's I, not I think it has to be done. Yeah. I think this has to be done by an organization uh, and it needs, this needs to be more than just, you know, we spent a good chunk of our time tonight talking about legislative change. Mm -hmm. The way that we should flex our muscle first is in that arena. Uh, that's the arena that you start. You get you get your chops and you get your connections and you start to meet the people that you need to meet uh, in the in the wider world to get these things done, so that we can be stronger when we go into political campaigns. Uh, we're just you know it's 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 the it's the gym workout before the fight, mm -hmm. and it's the area that we're going to have success in before we're going to have success there before we start electing people to office. I really do believe that. So, in fact, I believe that in part because I believe everybody's a libertarian to some degree, right? It's just a question of degrees. How much? Right. There's some who are left leaning, some are right leaning, but they all have some libertarian in them. And that is there's they all can say there's some area that they don't want the government involved in their lives. Right. Whether on the right, it's more regulation or on the left, it's their bedroom, whatever it is like they they've got the area that they think is, well, this, this is sacrosanct. We don't need government here. Mm -hmm. And so we can work across those lines in very principled fashion to get an awful lot done. And the progress that we have made on marijuana is an example of being able to do exactly that. Yeah. So I, I I would like to see more of that kind of transpartisan or or partisan you know uh, bipartisan outreach with the liberty the liberty message, but if we we got to have something to bring to the table, mm -hmm. and the thing that we should be bringing to the table is an army. Every time we show up, we ought to have our own army. Hell yeah, hell yeah, uh, and I I think that the the line between these two worlds within the the liberty movement. Uh, is crippling both both sides of it, and I think it's it's hurting the party more than it's hurting the other side. Because um, if we if if the party and these hundreds, if I'm not over, I don't think I'm over exaggerating here, of organizations that work on legislative work around the country, we're actually like in communication with each other uh, and like working together. We would a 
have that army that you're talking about working to help some of this legislative stuff. And we wouldn't be scrambling in California right now to try to get enough signatures for a psilocybin decriminalization petition statewide in California, which has been circulating for months and the LP hasn't touched it because this is what we do. Uh, and then on top of that, if we had our candidates working on stuff like that and helping, then they get to run for office as the person that helped decriminalize psilocybin in the state of California. That's something to actually run on. Not, hey, I have a podcast and I work at Walmart, like which is what most of our candidates are running on. So, <laughs> but like doing something, it's a win-win situation and it it dumbfounds me how little the political side and the legislative side of the liberty movement communicate, let alone actually cooperate. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 an awful lot of work for us to do, but I do hope that people will come check out People for Liberty. I really do. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm excited to be involved with it. I think People for Liberty is is like one of the. Uh, I mean, y'all are kind of new, right? So, uh, yes. and I'm talking about like a systemic issue. So I think, you know, you guys are actually doing something that will change that. Uh, and there's, a f I think, a few other organizations that might be trying to, but I, I think that People for Liberty is uh, the the one organization that, you know, kind of identified that problem also. And there's like, part of their mission is to, bring those two worlds a little bit closer together at least at least bring the lp into the the not just like out of the party bring libertarians out of the party and into other things just yeah bring them into other things uh, work with people who are not necessarily libertarian party members mm -hmm. um yes definitely i mean this is this is you know, while I spent most of tonight talking about you know kind of a libertarian party perspective i mean this is definitely bigger than that this is about you know, you know, I talk about the 60 million people, I'm talking about people who are basically libertarian, right? They may not uh, be the type that would come to a libertarian party meeting, right? That's not their, that's not their, their jam, but they are broadly speaking, they believe that the government is too big, too intrusive, too expensive. They want to do something to limit the size, the scope and the power of the federal government and, mm -hmm. and back home to free people in the state and then even do as you suggested, uh, to legalize that which should never have been made illegal in the first place. That was completely beyond the power of the government, government's moral and uh, constitutional authority to uh, regulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I, I def very much agree with, uh, with what you're saying. It was like uh, that this, this has to be bigger than the party. Um, and because it is for the other two parties also, you know, like the, it, neither of the other parties would be successful if they just tried to do everything within the umbrella of their party the way that we try mm. to do it. It would crumble into a million pieces. Um, like they have thousands of PACs and super PACs and nonprofits and mm -hmm. all of these various things. Um, but and honestly, so this is actually one of my biggest critiques of the Mises Caucus is because they are a PAC in function like illegally and my biggest critique of them is like you were better off if you just like are on like just be a pack like like pack a pack is a better plan here just just be a pack don't try to take over the party that's useless dude like like they should be doing what you guys are doing in my mind and just like be a pack that grows bigger than the party just fuck it like why take over 
this bureaucratic, like entrenched, obnoxious organization when you have a pack that could just operate by itself. I suspect that there is a belief, and I, you know, I mean, this is something that hasn't really ever been tested before. They are kind of a new phenomena. But I ex suspect that they think that there's a budget there and a bigger budget, and that there are opportunities, platforms that that the party provides that they don't quite have access to yet. I'm, and so we'll see how that all works out. Um, but I, to me, I'm I just I'm so I, I I have not I'm so disinterested in all of that. I, I haven't actually been a dues-paying member myself since 2003, which might come as a shock to you. Um, but I, I believe I, I vote for libertarians when they're available and I do poll form. I do root for the party, but all of the stuff that goes on inside doesn't feel like getting anything done. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm much more interested in what's going on and what we can advance outside. Mm -hmm. I, I want a lot of heat and criticism from my real enemies. I I'm with you there. You are 19 years ahead of me, but I, well, actually I, I don't, I think I was a dues paying member for a year. Like, I joined the Libertarian Party the same time that I registered to vote. Uh, I was 19. I registered to vote as a Libertarian. And it actually, I've, I've, I don't know if this is normal, um, but the New York State Board of Elections actually had a link to LP.org. When I was done registering as a Libertarian, it was like, oh, well, here's their website. Um, and, and I'm like, okay, that's weird. And I clicked on it and it was like, join the LP. And I was like, okay, yeah. Let's do that. It was like 10 bucks. And I was like, sure. I'm I have ten dollars. Um, and then I've never renewed. And I've never been a dues paying member of the state. Um and and now I've resigned from everything. Um that that once attached. Well, you have not resigned from everything because you're sitting here doing this podcast right now. Well, I resigned again. from everything official with the LP. Okay. You're you're a man with no titles. Well, okay. I'm I'm trying to collect other ones. So we've got free okay. speech media, and we've got a couple of other uh, side projects that I can't actually name on on air yet. Um, yeah, I like understand. I said, I'm I'm wor I I really just want to see legislative change happen. Um, and and I've uh, one of the things this year that's kind of clicked in my head is the availability for local legislation of like county legislators or like municipal legislation uh of and so i'm actually one of the one of the projects i can kind of sort of talk about because it's in such an infancy that it's not even really a spoiler um is really just a, a mission of finding the purple cities in the states that are one way or the other pretty heavily so cities like indianapolis um or or Pittsburgh, where it's like it's a blue city in a red state where they're never going to get what they actually want as a blue city and just try to work there. And then in what I was saying earlier, you know, maybe prop up an activist or two that can run for mayor or something in a couple of years. So they actually have mm -hmm. something to run on. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. More more uh, like a frontier project kind of right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is another great organization. Uh, and that's really what's gotten me as much as I'm disinterested and disexcited about the party. Like I'm really excited about the movement because, you know, there is the frontier project. There is you guys, there's for all Tennessee, honestly, like as, as much as like the internal drama and crap is obnoxious, like the existence of 
the Mises pack and what they've been able to accomplish thus far is exciting to me still. And, um, and you know, there's just a whole bunch of newer organizations and people. And I think the drama, the drama is doing one beneficial thing in my mind because it's pushing a bunch of people out of the party, but not in like a rage quit way that everyone th- like accuses people of making people leave the party but in the like very soft ways like like myself uh where it's just like you know this kind of sounds silly let's go look at something else oh people for liberty what's that oh yeah. tenth, tenth, tenth amendment center i've never heard of was, that let me go look you brought that up. that up earlier michael bolden's one of my favorite people what a great guy um i had him on he was my hundredth interview and i no offense to the other 120 something guests that i've had on but it's still my favorite episode and i have gotten more messages and and tweets and stuff about that interview than i think almost the rest of them combined of people just saying you know this woke me up to what else could be done uh with liberty besides just fighting over a cat like a county chair seat <laughs> you know <laughs> you know they've got some much they've had they've always had much better ideas over there mm-hmm. and uh they've you know they've they've figured out that the, the bill of rights is is a wonderful tool that can be can be highly leveraged and they found the part that you know part of it that's being ignored frankly so they they stepped in and i i find it interesting that they got you know i was involved with them i went out when they when they first started on their nullify now tours and was one of the speakers and back then we were being called neo-confederates and secessionists <laughs> right you know we were we were trying to bring back some kind of you know you end up on the uh uh the anti-defamation list right and uh but it's funny that you know when trump got in office the, the people on the left started finding they called it sanctuary cities instead but they found their 10th amendment right they they wanted to try to 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 to, to utilize the power of it so I think a lot of those criticisms have gone away. I don't know completely, but uh, I haven't talked to Michael recently about this. But Michael's Mike Michael's a great guy. I, I like him a lot. Agreed. I actually uh, so I'm I'm door knocking in a for a, a state house primary uh, here in Houston right now, and um, I knocked on somebody's door today. I asked them the question, "What do you want to see them uh, focused on in the state house this year?" And the dude's response was secede from the union <laughs> tax it and i was He's like tax it yep <laughs> i i just chuckled and i was like i wholeheartedly support that um i actually had a couple of good interactions today today was a fun day um good. but yeah that guy was i'm like yes he wouldn't open his door though which i guess also makes sense um but i actually there was one other work story that i uh, i wanted to tell based on our earlier conversation cuz um just talking about like going out and interacting with with non-libertarians and and just and and almost even even further back to our conversation about like evangelism and and uh, apologetics with libertarianism um i i was talking to somebody and uh i had said uh you know, I'm working on a Republican campaign. This guy's obviously a, a registered Republican that's answering his door because it's a primary even. So, um, and so I, you're working with Young Americans for Liberty. Is that I'm not I'm working uh, for just another uh, consulting company. I'm actually working for an ex state chair of theirs uh, okay. from like way I, back when. All right, go on. Go but, continue uh, with your yeah. story. Um, 
but yeah uh so we were talking about like all of the leftists that are invading texas and he wasn't really he he wasn't giving the quite the fear monger like like canned responses that i'm used to um and so i hit him with some nuance and i was like you know i actually think that that most people that are coming from blue states into Texas are like me. I came from New York and you know, I'm coming here because I like Texas because the taxes are lower. The tyranny is not here. Like, like we want to be here, but there's a couple th like Texas is a little farther right than maybe we want. Like, so, so that's why they're moving to Houston and Austin because they think that they can find a better of both best of both worlds there. Um, and instead it's there. Some of this, some of it's getting, skewed and you know austin is uh, it's it, it's an interesting city from what i've heard i've actually yet to be able to visit there but both sides have their opinions um and and i'm like i think that it's just getting played up to to scare you guys into like trying to push these people out instead of welcoming these like more libertarian leaning people and i said that word and he was like oh yeah you know i have no problem with the libertarians i like those guys and i was like nice and it was just i mean this guy's a lifelong bleeding heart republican but you know he's he still has a positive like outlook on libertarians which means that he probably wouldn't hate the idea of being one someday uh but it's i think we uh we played defeatism a lot in the movement of like you know, everyone's brainwashed. Everyone loves the state. Everyone depends on the state. Uh, it's all hopeless. Um, and I think that we... Uh, I think you're exactly right. I think we have to come up with a way to make people feel welcome. We got to create the welcome mat. Uh, so it's not... In, in terms of trying to build this data and, and get the largest list, it needs to be done in a way or cultivated or curated in a way people need to be attracted to activity. And so I think I think people get you know if they if they get involved in the party they're going to think and this is and I'm not I don't want to like beat on the party all night but I, I I think if they get involved in the party you tend to think that attending meetings participating in the debates getting candidates elected is activism but it doesn't actually change the world whereas the, we want to bring in people I think to activities where they are doers and that in the doing they have some success and they fellowship working with other doers. So it, it, I think it attracts a slightly different type of person, but it definitely has better incentives attached to it. There's less incentive for fighting over, you know, geez, you know, I wanna do all the work, right? You know, I'm sorry, I wanna knock on all the doors, right? You know, getting to be the person who gets to stand up and hold the gavel and be the grand poobah, you know, we're gonna have that fight, right, over here. But instead, what if they said, okay, well, it's really about who knocks on the most doors. Well, you know, gosh, I'm going to do all mine and David's doors, right? David, you just stay home. I want to show everybody how much better I am than you are at doors. Well, gosh, you know, somebody is driven that way. God bless them, right? Because mm -hmm. we need those doors knocked on. But most people aren't going to be, aren't going to do that, right? They're going to be grateful that David showed up to knock on doors too. Mm -hmm. And so I think we want to create an environment that's, that's tuned in that direction and, and you watch how People for Liberty develops, you know, what I'm seeing from my board vantage point is that we're looking to not only connect the people, but connect them in, in proactive ways and help them find the opportunities that are out there. These groups that exist that are doing the wonderful thing, that should be part of that organizing coalition type strategy. Mm -hmm. 
So before we wrap up, tell people how they can get involved with People for Liberty, where they find you guys, what kind of people you're looking for, and uh, yeah. Well, just come to the website, People for Liberty. It's People, F-O-R, People for Liberty. Uh, just come to the website there. Um, we got most of those URLs, so you can find us in, at uh, peopleforliberty.com and .org and .net and all the rest of that, right? Nice. Um, so just come there and uh and check us out and please do sign up so you get the information that we're sending out and find out about our new products and, and projects and we've got one coming that's very very big it's it's just a couple of weeks away i think maybe as soon as march we'll be uh we'll be releasing it but it'll be the beginning of this connective tissue that we're looking to put into place here and i really do believe that by the end of the year we'll be able to say we have the largest list in the libertarian movement well that's an exciting little tease. Um, maybe by the time Lauren uh, reschedules, uh, that she'll be able to tell me what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> so, guys, if you haven't already, I feel like probably a good chunk of you are already in this giant list. But go to this website that's scrolling across the bottom and join the list so that you can be part of the biggest list in the liberty movement um, and do some stuff. A list of doers. That's that's what I like about this. That's um, you know, you you've said it like four or five times throughout the the interview of like, you know, people doing things, and I, I like that because talking and fighting over who holds the gavel is is just a waste of time. And if they have time to stop at downsizedc.org as well, we'll appreciate that. There we've got the 300 where they can uh, join up on any one of the campaigns. We've got three criminal justice campaigns, three of the bills that we discussed during the first half hour uh, together, David. Uh, the Read the Bills Act, the Write the Laws, and the One Subject at a Time Act. They can just pick one or any of those six or all six of those and join the 300. There's nothing for them to do uh, until such time as we achieve the 300 in that area. And then we'll send, the, we'll, everybody will go out in waves of three, five, and six and and uh, and put the pressure on Congress to to move those, piece, those pieces of legislation forward. Heck yeah. Uh, well, Jim, thank you so much for coming, and again for being uh, for being so quick and uh, available on short notice. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I I'm glad to have been able to do this and to meet you tonight. This has been uh, this has been a real pleasure, and we've had a great conversation. I actually hope we get to do it again because we we left yeah. a whole bunch of things undiscussed. We got a lot. We got. But oh, I yeah. don't think we've saved the world yet, so I think we're going to have to do this again. Not quite. One more podcast, that's when we save the world. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, guys, thanks for watching. Uh, if you haven't already, if you don't, uh, subscribe to the channel, like the video, share it on Facebook, Twitter, Float, Getter, I Instagram, all of the things, and tell everyone about People for Liberty and about Downsize DC and about all of the other wonderful things that Jim is involved in. Uh, and then come on back here next week. We're talking to Matthew Crawford, uh, who has been a statistician working on all sorts of things COVID related for about two yeah. years now. And uh, I'm really excited for that. Uh, so we'll catch you then. Until then, keep up the fight. Shut up and sit down.